Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7. We are going to be picking up with the last verse of John 7 and then reading through John chapter 8, verse 11. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you, we come to hear from you, and we pray that you would speak to us, that you would guide us in this moment as we come to the scriptures, that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would soften our hearts and help us to listen and to learn. We pray that you would pour out your spirit to those ends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John seven fifty three through eight eleven. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, you'll likely notice in your Bibles that the story we have just read is set apart. Uh, Translations differ as to how they do this. The ESV gives it a heading that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then the ESV puts the entire story in double brackets. Uh, The footnote in the ESV goes on to say that some manuscripts don't have this story at all. Uh, Some manuscripts put it here after John 7.52, some a few verses earlier after John 7.36, some put it as an appendix at the end of John, and some include it in the Gospel of Luke. Well, what are we to do with this? Before getting to our text, and I do plan to preach from this text this morning, uh, let's briefly talk about what all this means, which means we have to talk about text criticism. Now, I know some of your eyes might glaze over this morning. Uh, If you're visiting with us, you might be wondering, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Uh, But this is actually important uh, to understand. It's important to understand what Christians mean when they talk about the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. God breathed out the scriptures. 
He inspired them. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what we now have. 2 Peter 1.21. Every word has been breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. When we say that, what we mean is, first and foremost, that when Paul put pen to paper or quill to parchment, every word he wrote down was inspired and is therefore from God, and is therefore infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. The original autographs, which is what we call the original manuscripts that Paul wrote, the original autographs were inspired by God. Now, uh, I don't want to exaggerate what I'm about to say, but uh, also I think we do need to understand it, that, that over time, some copies of those original autographs introduced copyist errors. Uh, Most of them were inconsequential. Uh, One manuscript might say Christ Jesus, while another says Jesus Christ. And it's also important to realize that no Christian doctrine is affected by any of these scribal errors one way or another. But nevertheless, copyists made mistakes. Uh, They might leave out a, a letter or a word or a line, or they might duplicate a letter or a word or a line. So then the question becomes, well, how do we know that what we have in our Bibles today is what Peter and Paul and James and John actually wrote? And the answer is twofold. Uh, The first is we believe that God in his sovereignty preserved his word for us. As with everything, this comes down to trusting our father to provide for his children And so the question is not so much whether what we have in our Bibles is what Peter and Paul and James and John wrote, but how. Uh, And so second, one way God provides, one of those ways, is through uh, the discipline of what we call textual criticism. Uh, Text criticism is not criticizing what is written, which is what you might think of when you hear that phrase. Uh, Don't let the name mislead you. It's the art of restoring a text to its original form. Uh, It's a a discipline that goes beyond uh, just Bible scholarship. Text criticism is where scholars uh, uh, of the Bible take the well over 5,000 surviving manuscripts and manuscript fragments and compare them with one another. And when they do that, in, in the few places that there are discrepancies, it's mostly obvious what is original and what is not. Now, if you only had two manuscripts, it might be hard to judge. And think about it, if we had two copies, say, of the Gospel of John, and that was it, and one included this story and the other did not, how would you decide whether it was original or not? It would be difficult. Uh, But if you have thousands of copies of the New Testament, uh, which we actually do, uh, and say 4,000 don't have this story and 500 do, Uh, And the 500 that do are all from one region of the world and they were written later in time than the others. Well, you you get the point. Uh, Things like numbers of manuscripts, geography, dating, even vocabulary and grammar all combine to give us confidence that what we have faithfully represents the original. Now, historical scholars in other disciplines are used to working with a handful of manuscripts that were written hundreds, even thousands of years after the originals. But Bible scholars work with thousands of manuscripts, many of which were written within decades of the original. And so the work of textual criticism, far from undermining, actually affirms our faith that what we have is historically accurate. 
John Piper has a, a sermon on this text, which uh, if you're interested in hearing more, I would encourage you to check out that sermon. He goes into more details here. And there he mentioned that it's probably good that we don't have the original autographs because our tendency would be to worship them, uh, to put them in a cathedral somewhere and charge people admission to go in and bow before them. Right? Like the bronze serpent that Moses made in the book of Numbers, which had to be destroyed years later because Israel began to worship it, our tendency is to take good things and then turn them into ultimate things. Well, uh, God didn't give us that chance in this case. But what he did give us was thousands of copies to ensure that we would know what was said. All right, all of that said, then what does that mean for our text this morning? What does it mean for John chapter 8? Well, the earliest manuscripts, as the ESV footnote says, uh, do not have this text. Uh, Those which do put it in various places in John or even in Luke. Uh, Now, Augustine defends its originality, uh, but most conservative Bible-believing scholars today recognize it as a later insertion into the text of John. Uh, It it could belong in Luke's gospel. It it actually fits well in Luke where it is found in chapter 21. Uh, The vocabulary even fits well with Luke's vocabulary, uh, but there just aren't many manuscripts that put it there either. Uh, What's interesting to me, though, is that it's still here. Uh, What's interesting to me is even though early copyists moved it around trying to find the right place, uh, they did not just leave it on the cutting room floor. Uh, Conservative scholars like D.A. Carson and Herman Ritterboss, while recognizing that it is not original to John, take it as an historically accurate story from the life of Jesus. There is something about this story that rings true. Uh, which I think is why it's still there in your English translation to this day, uh, despite the manuscript evidence to the contrary. One might even conclude that in this case, God has preserved this story despite the manuscript evidence. And so while we should be cautious uh, to get any new doctrine from this text, because it's likely not original to John's gospel, uh, it's worth looking at as a true historical incident in the life of Jesus. And when we do that, of course, what we find is something that fits snugly into the rest of the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, as consistent with what we find there. And it gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus' grace. And so we'll see that the points in our sermon really are found in many scriptural texts, though we are focused on this story from the life of Jesus. If you were to just ask me outright, uh, is this passage then scripture? Uh, If it's not original to John or not original to Luke, is it it scripture? Uh, I I would probably hem and haw a little bit. um, And I'd I'd have to say, I'm not not sure. Uh, This is a very rare case, by the way. It's not like you have this kind of thing dotting your Bible. No, there are are two places that I can think of uh, here in John and one at the end of Mark. Uh, Most scholars would say it's not uh, original, and yet it has the ring of truth about it. And despite the scholarship, we have yet to excise it from our Bibles. It's still here. Uh, And uh, so God has preserved it for us. Uh, I realize I may have just made things more confusing for you and not less. Uh, And so feel free to chat with me afterward. Uh, We can be confused together. Uh, But let's 
take a moment to look at what really is an amazing text and an amazing story from the life of Jesus. And here's the question it will answer for us this morning. Are grace and obedience opposed to one another? It's an important question in the Christian life. Uh, often, Often people both outside and inside Christianity make the mistake of juxtaposing grace and obedience. We pit them against one another as if they are at either end of a scale. Either we show grace or we call for obedience. And so we think, well, gracious people, gracious churches are those who never talk about obedience, never talk about law, never talk about duty. Those which never call people to change, to repent, to start doing things differently. But those who do such things, well, they, they clearly aren't very nice. Right? They, they aren't being gracious. They aren't being understanding and so on. Right? For us, law and grace, justice and mercy are opposites. You either have one or the other. And Christianity, sadly and more often than not, is seen as a religion of law and rules and so condemnation and judgment. And so here's the question for you this morning. How do you relate law and grace? How do you relate justice and mercy Which is at the heart of the Christian religion? Do you see Christianity as fundamentally a religion of grace or law, justice or mercy? How does that shape the way you view yourself? How does that shape the way you treat other people? Well, our outline uh, this morning, answering the question, are grace and obedience opposed to one another? There are three main points. You can see them in your bulletin. Two common mistakes, the biblical corrective, and the life of grace. First, two common mistakes. Uh, I I really do love this story. Uh, This is one of those common stories in the gospel where Jesus' opponents try to set him up to fail. And he turns the tables on them, demonstrating his wisdom and their folly. Uh, The setting of this story is the temple. Uh, One of the reasons, that's one of the reasons that it fits here in John 7 through 8. Although it does fit even better in Luke 21. Uh, In Luke 21, 37 to 38, We read, and every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, compare that to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Well, while in the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and this is the only time they are mentioned together in John's gospel, the scribes and the Pharisees. However, they're mentioned multiple times in Luke's, always in opposition to Jesus, as here. Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, but they don't come alone. They they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, Do do you notice the problem here, right from the start? Uh, They bring a woman caught in the act of adultery. Where's the man? Adultery is not something one commits by themselves. Did the man run off and they were just unable to catch him? Or do they have a double standard? Like so many, what's good for the gander is not good for the goose. Or even worse, was one of them the male counterpart, as some have assumed? Well, we don't know, but it is clear at least that their primary concern is not justice. They are using this woman, according to verse 6, to trap Jesus. This is very common in the Gospels, right? Luke 6, 7, the the scribes and the Pharisees watch him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. 
Or Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Or Luke eleven sixteen, others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, what is the test that they have for Jesus here? The law of Moses says that one caught in adultery should be put to death. Uh, they, they know Jesus' reputation. He eats and drinks with tax collectors. He was a friend of sinners. He even had the audacity on occasion to forgive sins, something only God can do. And so they think Jesus is going to go against Moses. They think he's soft on sin. On the other hand, the Jews in that day don't have the legal right in Rome to put someone to death. In John 18, later in in this gospel, Pilate will say to Jesus' accusers, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And the Jews will respond, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, meaning under Roman law, it was not lawful for them to put anyone to death. And what that means is if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and stone her, he would be advocating the overthrow of Roman law. But if he says, let her go, he would be going against the Mosaic law. It's a classic trap, right? Just like when the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus on another occasion and ask if it is right to pay taxes to Caesar. They believe there's no good answer here. Anything Jesus says will get him in trouble. Anything Jesus says will be used against him. Either he has to go against the law of Moses or go against his own gracious character and the law of Rome. They've got him. At least they think they've got him. The problem is they are making two common mistakes. Well, they're making three common mistakes. They're betting against Jesus, which never goes well. But the other two, uh, but there are two other uh, errors in their thinking also. The first is they equate grace with permissiveness. They think if Jesus is gracious, he will be permissive, right? Have you ever fallen into that trap? Uh, it, It could go one of two ways. You might think, I can't forgive this person or they'll just do it again. You think if I forgive someone, I'm thereby encouraging them in being sin. I'm, I'm being soft. I've got to take a hard line on sin. I've got to, I've got to uh, make this person earn their forgiveness. Or you might think I'm forgiven, therefore I can do as I please. I'm forgiven and so I can sin as I like. I'm forgiven, God accepts me as I am, therefore don't judge me, don't call me out, don't tell me I'm in the wrong. God forgives me and overlooks my sin. You should too, right? Equating grace with permissiveness might lead to either refusing to forgive because we've gotta take a hard line on sin so we can't be gracious, or it might lead us to a life of sin and self-indulgence because we're already forgiven after all. And that's common mistake number one. We equate grace with permissiveness. Common mistake number two is that we think biblical religion is legalism. Uh, The the religious religious elite here quote the law of Moses, and they quote it accurately, uh, but they quote it as if that's all the Bible has to say. They believe the law is the end of the story. There are many Christians and non-Christians who think this about Christianity. Uh, some Christians think that the heart of Christianity is the law. Do this and you will live, they quote. Do this, uh, be a, a good boy or a good girl and God will love you. These Christians are often very careful to find a rule for everything. Uh, they live in constant fear of disobeying and constant guilt at having disobeyed. Uh, they're, not, they're often not very fun to be around because all they can think about is what not to do. 
They tend to be judgmental or uh, critical or unkind. And non-Christians look at at this kind of so-called Christianity and they run the other way. If Christianity is simply a religion of rules, well, who needs it? Life is hard enough without adding more rules, more guilt, more condemnation. And so common mistake number one, we equate grace with permissiveness. Common mistake number two, we think biblical religion is legalism. And of course, if those things are true, that means that grace is opposed to biblical religion. Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees assume Jesus has no way out because his gracious attitude, they think, is opposed to Moses. They think at the heart of biblical religion is law. They think Jesus is soft on sin. They think grace and obedience are opposed to one another. Jesus can't possibly get out of this one. He has to choose between justice and grace, obedience or kindness. Either Jesus has to go against the law of Moses or go against his own gracious character. They've got him, so they think. Well, those are the two common mistakes. Uh, I wonder if you buy into them yourself. Uh, Do you sometimes mistake grace for permissiveness? Do you sometimes mistake biblical religion for legalism? Uh, Do you think Moses has the final word, or more specifically, the law of Moses? Well, that brings us to our second point, the biblical corrective. At this point, Jesus does something really odd. Uh, This is something that he doesn't do in any other gospel, something the incarnate Jesus does not do anywhere else in Scripture. He bends down, verse 6, and he writes with his finger on the ground. Now, you can imagine the speculation that has gone on as to what Jesus wrote. Was it the, the names of his interlocutors? Following Jeremiah 17, which says, those who turn away from the Lord will have their names written in the earth. Augustine suggested that, among others. Uh, Was it his verdict following Roman legal procedure in which the judge would write down his verdict before reading it out? Was it the Ten Commandments or some part of the Ten Commandments? There are arguments for each of these. Of course, the problem is the text just doesn't say. Each is ultimately speculation, though the last, we'll see, may have something going for it. And since the writer doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote, in and of itself, it can't be all that significant, or he would have told us, which means the significance must be in the act itself. Some think it's just a a stall tactic, and that's possible, but at the same time, it's so unique that there seems to be some significance in the act itself. Well, what could that be? Well, let's think about this in the context of the rest of Scripture for a minute. Have you ever seen someone anywhere else in Scripture write with their finger before? Oh, actually we have, right? God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone, and Exodus tells us, with his finger. Exodus 31, 18, God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And so if this act of Jesus is symbolic of anything, it is echoing God writing the law on the tablets of stone, in which case Jesus is subtly signaling at least that here they are arguing about the law but they do not recognize the one who gave the law standing in their midst. They argue about the law with the one who gave the law, who wrote the law, who is the law. It's a signal of their folly and a harbinger of their imminent 
downfall. Now they, they keep pushing. They continue to ask Jesus what he thinks in verse seven. And so Jesus stands up and says this famous line, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If it was anyone other than Jesus saying such a thing, you might say it was a gamble, right? Surely there was at least the possibility of some arrogant jerk in the crowd who thinks very highly of himself, who was ready to condemn and was out for blood. Uh, they seem to be pretty out for blood. They're, they're out to put Jesus to death after all. We've been told that repeatedly in John's gospel. But Jesus knows the heart of man. He knew what he was doing. And so he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And he bends down and again begins to write on the ground. How does the mob respond? Well, look at verse 9. We're told that when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Why beginning with the older ones? Why is it that those who were older leave first? Because they have lived long enough to know their sin. They, they know they can't hide behind masks of righteousness, pretense, and performance. And some think that Jesus was convicting them of adultery. You know, he said in Matthew 5.28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That their sin is no different, Jesus would be saying. They are no better. And perhaps, uh, but uh, that's not what Jesus says. He, he just says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And he leaves it up to their consciences to convict and guide them. This is the, the first corrective of these two common mistakes. Common mistake number two was you equate biblical religion with legalism. But to assume that at the heart of biblical uh, religion is the law, right? What, what's the corrective of that? It's to know the depth of your sin. You see, if you recognize the depth of your sin, uh, you will know, therefore, there, there must be something more than law. Uh, or else we're all condemned, uh, if Christianity is fundamentally about the law, then there is no good news for sinners, only condemnation. The moment you look into your heart, the moment you get honest, is the moment you realize there's got to be something more than law here. It's the moment you stop pointing fingers and start crying out for grace. Now, there, there is something that I should point out at this point, which is Jesus is not saying that only sin, uh, sinless people can administer justice. Think about uh, how, what that logic would look like. If by throwing the first stone, Jesus means administer civil justice, and if Jesus is saying that only one without sin can administer civil justice, well, what would that mean? That would mean that no one could administer civil justice of any kind. We would have uh, no police, no judge, no jury, no justice. But Jesus is not saying in civil life, only sinless people can administer justice. That would mean the breakdown of justice and so the breakdown of society. And so what is he doing? I, I think it's obvious, but I guess it's worth saying, Jesus is calling them out on their hypocrisy. Here they are, jealously setting a trap for Jesus. 
Here they are seeking to find something against a good man. Here they are using this woman rather than loving her. Here they are seeking for, quote, justice for this woman's sin, but ignoring that of the man. Here they are ready to denounce another for their own ends and purposes, and they are talking about the law? This is what Jesus spoke of back in chapter 7, verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? You hypocrites, he's saying. Jesus is calling them on their hypocrisy. They they aren't seeking justice. They are using justice, perverting justice for their own ends. They are not for justice. They're just against Jesus. And Jesus gently nudges them. And they get it. And they walk off. Do you know the depth of your sin? Do you know that you are sinful by nature to the core? Do you know that deep down you are as sinful as everyone else? Uh, You may be outwardly better, but internally you and I are the same. Our hearts are turned in on ourselves. I love me more than I love God and neighbor. Now, you may think, well, of course I know this, right? This is just basic Christian, the, the, the basic Christian doctrine of sin. Okay, but if you know this, why do you still judge? Why do you look down on people? Why do you talk about them and those people? Why do you draw lines? That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing after all. They thought this woman caught in adultery was worse than they were. She deserved to be stoned. They were the good religious people who would do the stoning. When we look down on others, whether individuals or groups, when we say, I, I can't believe that they would do that. I don't understand why anyone would do or think or say or act like that. You are not appreciating the depth of your own sin. You think you're better. But know the depth of your sin, and you will realize that Christianity can't be all about law, not fundamentally. There's got to be something more. Which brings us to the second corrective. Know the power of Jesus' grace. Some want to harp on law and rules and duty to the exclusion of grace. Others want to emphasize grace to the exclusion of law and obedience. We think grace is the same as being permissive. Again, uh, Jesus, though, cuts through all of that in verses 10 and 11. Jesus stands up and he says to this woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and sin no more. Neither I condemn you. Uh, that, that doesn't mean Jesus approves of her actions. That doesn't mean Jesus doesn't condemn her actions. But he says, neither do I condemn you, this woman, this person in front of him. Jesus doesn't condemn this sinner. Uh, John three seventeen says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or John 12, 47, uh, Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Luke 5, we're told that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And, and uh, later Jesus says in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus did not come 
He, he did not become incarnate to condemn. That's not the purpose of his coming into the world. But while Jesus accepts this woman, he nevertheless has an agenda for her life, doesn't he? An agenda for change. Uh, some people think, well, if you accept me, you've got to accept me as I am and not expect anything else. You can't accept me and have a change agenda for my life. But I've got to say, and you need to hear, and I think the Bible clearly teaches, that that's not the way love works. If you have a relative, for example, right, a brother or a sister, a parent, a child, a friend, who is, say, literally killing themselves slowly with drugs, and you don't care, if you don't wish they would stop, if you don't at least long for some kind of a change agenda to happen in their lives, if acceptance of them for you means no agenda, then you don't love them. Apathy is not grace. Grace says, I love you and want what's best for you. Now that doesn't mean that you impose your likes, your dislikes, your preferences and dreams on another person, but this is where the law comes in, isn't it? objective, right and wrong, good and bad. Grace says, I want what is genuinely good for you. And so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Jesus is not saying we should overlook or ignore sin. He doesn't condemn the woman, but he doesn't say, you're all good, right? Feel free to live as you please. Now, we need to go even a step further here. I think it's helpful to go a step further here. It's not just that Jesus shows grace and expects change, though that's true. It's not just that Jesus shows grace and so expects change, though that's true as well. It's that grace leads to change. Now, think about the, these verses, verses Brian read earlier for us. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Or 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. You see, if the grace of God, that, that it, it is the grace of God that provokes obedience. It is the grace of God that motivates obedience. It is the grace of God that enables obedience. Too often, people think they must clean themselves up before coming to Christ. Well, you cannot clean yourself up before coming to Christ. We come to Christ dirty and he cleanses us. That's the way it works. Not just once, but day after day after day after day. We come dirty seeking to be cleansed. We come empty seeking to be filled. We come thirsty seeking to be satisfied. We come needy seeking grace. And Jesus fills us up and cleans us off and sends us out. This is what refutes the, the first common mistake, right? The mistake that grace is permissiveness. On the contrary, grace is powerful. Grace enables change. Grace cleanses us off and makes us new. Know the depth of your sin and at the same time, know the power of Jesus' grace at work in your life. And this then brings us to our final point, the life of grace. The life of grace is a life of knowing grace and showing grace. Uh, knowing grace. How is it that Jesus can bring law and grace together as he does? 
because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus satisfied the justice of God that he might show us the grace of God. In Jesus, justice and mercy meet at the cross. He bore our penalty for sin that we might receive God's mercy for sinners. For all who are in Christ, Jesus forgives our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. And he calls us to repentance and new obedience. God's kindness leads to repentance. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. Do you feel weighed down by guilt? Look to Jesus. Trust in him. Hear his words. Neither do I condemn you. Are you continuing to live in sin? Trusting in Jesus, but living as if nothing has changed. Hear his words. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The life of grace is a life of knowing God's grace offered in Jesus and living in light of that. Second, it's also a life of showing God's grace offered in Jesus. If you've come to know God's grace in Jesus, then remember the words of Jesus, let him who has no sin throw the first stone. And what that means is not you can never make a judgment call on another's behavior. It means don't be judgmental. It means accept people where they are with an agenda for change. Really, it simply means don't be a hypocrite, condemning others for their sin while sweeping your sin under the rug. Again, Romans 2, uh, again, Paul says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Or Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye, but take the log out of your eye first. Jesus forgives us so that we are then free from having to compare, to prove ourselves, and to judge others. We are forgiven that we might be free to forgive. And so let me ask, who who do you look down on? Who, Who are you holding a grudge against? Who do you condemn About who do you say, I I can't believe those people, or I can't forgive, or I refuse to get along, or I will not tolerate. Who are you holding a grudge against? Where are you bitter? Know the depth of your sin. Sympathize with sinners. And know the power of Jesus' grace, and show that same grace to others. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Simply pray that you would bring us to know your grace in Jesus and to be able to show that grace to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.